Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Alva. And I'm Rachel. And you're listening to the New Statesman Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Tim Durrant to discuss the latest developments in the Owen Patterson case and the Parliamentary Standards Committee. And I ask Rachel what Boris Johnson gets wrong about the classics. So Anoush and Stephen are both away on holiday. So um, I'm very happy to be joined by Rachel Cunliffe, our online editor. Hello, nice to be here. <laughs> Making your New Statesman podcast debut. And we're joined by a very special guest, Tim Durrant, from our friends at the Institute for Government, the IFG. Welcome, Tim. Hi, it's great to be here. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster 24 hours. We thought that we were going to be talking about the fallout from this vote last night. MPs, Conservative MPs, mainly voting to overturn uh, the Parliamentary Standards Committee, um, letting their colleague Owen Patterson off the hook for now, um, having been found to break lobbying rules. But within the past 30 minutes, we're recording on Thursday morning, we've had a statement from Jacob Rees-Mogg. Last night's vote has created a certain amount of controversy. It is important that standards in this House are done on a cross-party basis. The House, the House voted very clearly yesterday to show that it is worried about the process of handling these complaints and that we would like an appeal system, but that change would need to be on a cross-party basis, and that is clearly not the case. While there is a very strong feeling on both sides of the House that there is a need for an appeals process, there is equally a strong feeling that this should not be based on a single case or applied retrospectively. I fear last night's debate conflated the individual case with the general concern. This link, this link needs to be broken. Therefore, I and others will be looking to work on a cross-party basis to achieve improvements in our system for future cases. So it looks, Tim, as though possibly this plan isn't going ahead, but it's not exactly clear from what Jacob Rees-Mogg has said whether actually this new committee will retrospectively let Owen Patterson off the hook. Can you, can you shed a little bit of light on what seems to be going on? Yeah, I, I can try. I mean, as you say, it's quite unclear. It was quite unclear yesterday, once the vote had gone through, what actually would happen next in terms of this new committee being set up because Labour and the SNP said they would have no part of it and then there was a question about, well, what will the new committee do with Owen Patterson's case anyway? Now what Rhys Mogg has said is that they didn't want to conflate an individual case with the whole system and therefore presumably there will still be a resolution to the Owen Patterson case sooner than was expected with, with this new committee being set up. But 
given the sort of the strength of the briefing that's come from government ministers, we saw Kwasi Kwarteng this morning saying that he thought the current system wasn't working. Lots of government backbenchers have been very critical of it. Clearly, there is still appetite among the Conservative Party to reform the standards regime in the Commons. But I think they've realised they've kind of uh, overstepped with with doing it halfway through a case. And presumably, there will be a, a distinction, a separation between the Patterson case and whatever happens to the standards regime. You guys probably know better than I do. But all of this stuff about how the Commons kind of manages itself and polices itself is they try and do it on a cross-party basis. They try and get... Uh, decent amount of support from across the, the benches and you would imagine that the opposition parties even if you know they've got some of what they wanted today and that the, the government has rode back from where it was yesterday you would imagine that the opposition parties would still be quite unimpressed with what the government has tried to do and therefore there's a question I think as to can there be a real genuine cross-party attempt to reform this system in the next few months because there is so much anger and, and strength of feeling at the moment. So I feel like we might go into the the specifics of the Owen Patterson case in a second because that's so interesting. But I think that Rachel and I would both be quite interested if you could shed some light on if there actually are issues with the current way that the Standards Committee works. That's the case being made by uh, the Conservative Party and Labour MPs have been saying that the system isn't perfect. And in, in particular, the government has been arguing that Owen Patterson didn't have the right to appeal. To what extent is that actually the case? Well, so the way it works is for minor complaints against MPs, the Parliamentary Commission for Standards can investigate them and come to a judgment on her own and say, for example, you used Commons headed notepaper for private business, you shouldn't have done that, you should apologise. That is fairly straightforward. For more substantial complaints of the kind that Patterson was accused of, this lobbying stuff, she will write a report for the Standards Committee, which is a committee made up of MPs and non-MPs, the one that Chris Bryant chairs. And they look through her report, look through all the evidence that she gathered, and then come to their own judgment. So there isn't a formal stage in the process that's called an appeal process, but it does have multiple stages. And Clangham Debonair, who's the shadow leader of the House, said on Newsnight yesterday that effectively that committee stage does function as an appeal because the MP in question can kind of provide more evidence, make arguments again. So it's a multi-stage process. What the Conservatives seem to be envisaging and, and the government seems to be talking about is something more akin to a, a sort of court of law where, you know, there are advocates and there's a, an independent judge and, and all of this. Now, obviously, that would be a, a lot more process questions about who those people would be, how would you choose them, are they going to be paid, who are they going to be paid by, all sorts of questions about about how that would work. But that seems to be the model that they're operating on. I think the important thing for me is that there's a lot of criticism of this system by MPs, but it was MPs who set this up. The, the current standard system was set up at, in the wake of the expenses scandal. It's been changed over time since then. There's been additions um, made reacting to different uh, scandals. But it is it is something that MPs are the ones who they decide, they sign it off, they vote on the standing orders of the Commons which set out this process. So I do struggle to understand why they chose now to make this change. If they think these problems are so deep and embedded and, in, and deep-rooted, they could have changed it earlier. 
I think it's really interesting what you said about the idea that it might be moving more towards a court of law and that kind of process, because that's also a uh, a, a model that's been thrown around with regards to things like uh, MPs giving evidence to select committees or indeed external guests such as Dominic Cummings giving uh, evidence to select committees. And if that information is misleading or inaccurate, that has the same ramifications as lying under oath and there are various people across politics and, and the law that argue that there are pros and cons to, to both systems but there are actually some issues with trying to treat parliamentary bodies as though they were the apparatus of the of the legal system. Do you think that is the direction that we are potentially heading in and if we were what are some of the problems with with conflating those two things? I think there is a contradiction isn't there because as you say if Parliament starts to move towards a more legal process, then, or a legalistic process, then does that actually take powers away from the elected members of Parliament? And so one of the points that was made yesterday, that the Conservatives made, is that the Commissioner is an unelected official, she's appointed by the House, she's effectively a civil servant, she is doing the work that is set out by the way her role is established by the Commons. And therefore, they didn't feel that, you know, an unelected person should have the ability to to say that an elected person should be suspended. The obvious response to that is, well, in serious cases, it is the elected committee, the MPs, who get to recommend the sanction for, for MPs who've broken the code of conduct. And I think there is a tension in the idea that you want more, seemingly what the government what they were arguing yesterday, I think, you know, their position has changed, is changing by the minute. But what they were arguing yesterday is that there needs to be both more independence, but also more power for MPs. And you can't square that circle. The, the two things just don't work. I, I noticed that you put it very gently, Tim, but that, that it's interesting that the government chose this moment to do this. And there was a, a funny interview with, or an uncomfortable interview with Quasi Quarteng on the Today programme this morning, um, done very well by Nick Robinson, where he was saying that um, the Conservative government has been concerned by these issues with the Standards Committee for years. And, and Nick Robinson was asking, well, how long have the Conservatives been in government? <laughs> and, you know, and it has been the case there, you know, there have been plenty of other MPs investigated by the Standards Committee, not least Ian Paisley, famously the Northern Irish MP, um, who's now jokingly referred to as the MP for Sri Lanka because of his, <laughs> his, his links with that country, um, that the um, investigating... Um, committee looked into but I I suppose it's interesting there, there there are specific politics around Owen Patterson and there's a kind of personal angle that is probably worth looking into even if it doesn't really exonerate all of the facts so I suppose a thing that Conservative MPs have been talking about privately is as well as you know being a, a former cabinet minister uh, the former boss of Carrie Johnson um, the Prime Minister's wife and and a, and a great friend to lots of people um, in that party his um, his wife died by suicide uh, within the past year and I think that there have been concerns around what a 30-day suspension would would mean for a man in those particular personal circumstances. And I, I'm so I, I wanted to ask you, Tim, really, I mean, surely there, there must have been a better way of doing this that didn't involve, um, that didn't involve throwing out the standards committee. Because, I mean, would there not have been mechanisms if that was the real concern um, 
for you know giving him for example a shorter suspension on compassionate grounds or something like that absolutely i mean so that the, the, the 30 days was the recommendation of, of the committee that put forward the, the the first motion that to be voted on yesterday that was amended by andrea ledson's uh, amendment but the reason the number of days matters is because if a an MP is suspended for more than 10 days, then that opens a recall petition in their constituency. And if more than 10% of registered voters in that constituency sign the petition, then there has to be a by-election. So it, it, sort of the difference between 11 days and 30 days is, is moot. But if it's over 10, then that's what happens. So you could absolutely imagine that, well, maybe what the Commons could have done yesterday is say, yes, we recognise the seriousness of what he has done, but we don't think, as you say, because of personal circumstances, we don't think suspension is merited, and therefore we're going to amend this. So rather than it be a 30-day suspension, it's a nine-day suspension. The kind of, I guess, the counter-argument to that would be the, the committee's report was very damning. It said this was the most kind of egregious breach of the code of conduct that it's seen, and that it was, you know, repeated behaviour by Patterson in terms of he lobbied for these companies it was, I think, 14 times, you know, trying to talk to different bits of government about what they were doing. Um, and the committee clearly felt quite aggrieved, I think, that he didn't recognise that he had done anything wrong. And even after the vote yesterday, he was still saying, oh, I'd, do, I'd do it again. If I was in the same position, I'd do it again. So clearly, there is a, um, you know, a sense that the committee did want to make a statement. They were trying to send a message, even with the kind of particular circumstances that he found himself in. I think it's important to say as well, obviously, all the lobbying that being investigated happened several years ago. It was over, I think, between 2016 and, and 2018 or 19. So it's a separate period from from the more recent events. I want to ask a quick question about the, the concept of retroactive changes or retroactive justice, because we've just been talking about a, a recall petition. I was in Parliament a few weeks ago, which is really exciting for me because I don't get to go very often. Uh, and it was the afternoon when MPs were voting on what to do about Rob Roberts, who is the Conservative MP who has now had the Conservative whip removed, but is still a, a, a member of the party. This is due to a, a sexual harassment case. And they can't expel him as an MP or they can't start a recall petition the conservative party's hands are sort of tied here and and unless he does the honorable thing and resigns which he's chosen not to do and i spoke to a couple of people who were a couple of conservatives who were saying yes we think this is awful and we think he definitely should resign but this is the system as it currently stands and one of the integral principles of justice is that you you can't retrospectively change the rules and if somebody is going through a particular legal process you can't halfway through that legal process decide to change it and I found that quite a compelling argument and I could see it was providing cover for them to say we completely abhor what he has done and we're not defending him but we are defending the process and the principles of justice it kind of feels a little bit like they've changed their minds midway through the Owen Patterson case am I being unfair to to see it that way? No, I don't think you are at all. I think that's I think that is what happened. And Chris Bryant made a similar point yesterday when he was speaking in, in the debate about uh, the the amendment that he had decided not to try and change anything with Rob Roberts because he wanted that process that was started to be finished. And clearly, people do want do expect that whatever process people begin with should be finished. And I think that's entirely fair. So uh, we've just had confirmation that this is actually a full U-turn by the government and that there are plans to hold a vote in the Commons um, as to whether Owen Patterson will be suspended for 30 days. So um, as we were saying, that 
would leave him open to potentially a recall petition and, in theory, another by-election in the very safe Conservative seat of North Shropshire. So that's interesting then that um, Rob Roberts, who we've been discussing, is in a, a tricky seat in North Wales with a very slim majority. That's somewhere that the Conservatives really don't want to fight a by-election. Owen Patterson's seat, you know, it looks unlikely that the dial would move there. But can I just get your reaction quickly, both of you, to that U-turn? Does that kind of draw a line under it? I mean, I don't I don't think it does. I don't know what you think. But for me, it's quite embarrassing for the government, isn't it? I mean, what, less than 24 hours? You know, yesterday morning, they were saying it's a matter for the House of Commons. This morning, the business secretary was saying the commissioner should resign. And now they're saying, oops, we got it wrong. Like, that is that is poor management. And I imagine that a lot of backbench MPs are going to be quite angry about that, given they were three-line whip to vote for what the amendment was saying yesterday. So if there's a vote next week on Patterson, presumably the, the vote will support the committee's recommendation. That tends to be what happens. There might be amendments to the length of the suspension. But he, I imagine, you know, won't have benefited from all of this publicity. It's not been positive news around him, has it? So I think, as you say, Alva, the, the seat is secure. So if it does get to a by-election, presumably nothing will change in the balance of uh, of the majority. But it's kind of exposed a weakness, I guess, in this government's approach to standards that I don't think is going to go away. I think you don't see this government U-turn very often, even in the face of widespread public and, and media pressure. I think the fact that even the Mail front page this morning is talking about Tory sleaze and that you have Conservative backbenchers who were pushed into voting for this or indeed who, who, who didn't, who abstained, who voted against, telling us, the New Statesman and others, that their inboxes are full of outrage uh, really, really makes a point. I think uh, this government is very used to thinking that most stories like this are Westminster bubble stories and no one outside really cares. But but this one, the idea of MPs marking their own homework seems to have cut through and it doesn't really seem like anyone at number 10 uh, thought that that might happen. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And now it's time for a section I like to call I Ask Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I greatly enjoyed a piece that Rachel did within the past week uh, about... Um, Boris Johnson's comments that the Roman Empire fell due to uncontrolled immigration. I really recommend it if you haven't read it. Oh, thank um, you. But I, so I wanted to ask you, firstly, what did he 
get wrong about that? And what's the bigger significance in terms of the way we appropriate or misappropriate the classics? I love this question. I love any chance to to get to write about classics. I did classics at university and it's always great to be able to use my, quote, useless degree. Um, although Boris Johnson is also a classicist and, and clearly has, has gone a certain way in terms of success with that. And he likes to use classical analogies and classical references. And I, I like it too. I, I like the idea that he's popularising the classics, but he doesn't always get it right. So what he said, he was making some allusion to, to climate change and he was talking about how civilizations can can fall as well as rise and he said look at the roman empire which fell largely as a result of uncontrolled immigration uh, and he says they, they they all came in from the east and and that's why it collapsed which isn't really true i've been arguing with people on twitter all week about this because there's an element of that there's an element to which as the roman empire expanded over several centuries and got more and more diverse communities and 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 more and more people uh, managing it from the center of rome became more and more difficult and that the, the the mix of people and the influx of people's did have an impact on the weakening of of governance structures. That bit is broadly true. That's not the same as saying it fell largely as a result of uncontrolled immigration. For a start, it wasn't immigration as we'd think of it. So the, the, the Roman Empire fell, and I put that in quote marks because it didn't actually fall, it split, but that's a separate conversation. But it fell in the 5th century AD um, and in 212 AD, so 300 years pretty much before that, there was a ruling that said from the Emperor Caracalla that said any free man living within the Roman Empire was automatically a Roman citizen. So these aren't immigrants. These are Roman citizens all over the world, which is something that I think people often miss when they talk about the idea of Rome conquering other nations is that Rome was actually very welcoming in in a way and, and wanted its peoples to be intrinsically Roman. So it's partly wrong for that reason. It's partly wrong because there are a whole load of reasons, mainly economic uh, and indeed um, political, while the Roman Empire weakened to do with the corruption of the political classes and the fragmentation of politics and all things that you could probably draw allusions to with uh, with today's politics if you if you wanted to. But the real reason it, it got to me, other than it being factually incorrect is that there is this trend for right-wing movements and right-wing politicians to appropriate the classical world. There was a really good podcast on the BBC on this, actually, that I reviewed for The Statesman as well. And the classical world doesn't actually fit into this image of white nationalism or Western superiority that a lot of those movements would like it to. Roman Empire, incredibly ethnically diverse. They had an emperor at one point who came from Northern Africa. Uh, The statues that we all see and assume are gleaming white used to be painted. The Roman attitude to race and to immigration is in no way comparable with the arguments that we're having on that today. And I just get really annoyed when politicians appropriate it and, and get it wrong. And it's interesting as well, I suppose you must be aware of this having having studied classics. There's a bit of a, a class dimension, I suppose, to the use of classics in in public discourse, I suppose, because there is this perception that, I mean, so Latin and Greek are not very widely studied at state schools. My state school did teach Latin. 
<laughs> so I did it to GCSE. But um, I, it's it's not as widely studied. It's really associated with private schools. And you're trying very hard not to say it's elitist. And yeah, I, but, <laughs> but, but there's a there's a perception of it being elitist. Yeah. And I wonder if you feel that when Boris Johnson uses it, that's an important context of that. That actually there are not that many people equipped with uh, masters in classics like you who are able to say this is a misappropriation of these ideas and, and that people aren't really equipped to to challenge them. Definitely. Uh, and I, I think the way he uses them is, is really quite cynical because it makes him sound intelligent and very well read and very highly educated. And he obviously is highly educated. He did classics at Oxford. But these are not accessible references. So I think when he makes them, there's a clip of him a couple of years ago before he was prime minister reciting the, the opening lines of the Iliad in the original Greek and getting a, a massive round of applause for that. Which, again, is, is, is quite impressive, but I think it's because it's inaccessible and people hear it and go, oh, he must really know what he's talking about. And then when people such as the Professor Mary Beard at Cambridge University, who actually taught me history, when she comes out and goes, actually, it's not quite like that, it, it becomes a kind of niche academic argument and, and the kind of wider context of it gets gets lost. I would love it if... Latin was taught more widely in schools. And I also think that there are ways for people who aren't able to study the languages in the original at school to still go on and study them at university or do classical civilizations or ancient history. And I think that's really valuable as well, because there are lessons when it comes to politics or history or culture, or the idea of European history and European civilization that are rooted in classical ideas. And the more people get involved with that and study it, the better. But I think when he, Boris Johnson in particular makes claims like that, he is both elevating his own intellect uh, and using classical references kind of as a mask for what is very clearly his own political agenda. And he gets away with it. And that's particularly, particularly infuriating. He doesn't always get it right, though. An argument with, this is in the article, he was having a debate with Ken Livingston in, in the, the mayoral elections years and years and years ago, and he got his Pericleses mixed up. He got the great statesman of Athens, who he loves so much, he has a bust of him in his office, mixed up with the Shakespeare character, who has the same name, but is a completely different person. So he is really, <laughs> really not someone you should go to for classical accuracy. Oh, it's a double-edged sword, though, because it's infuriating that he gets it wrong. But I love it that it gives us the opportunity to have conversations like this. And <laughs> Stephen and I complain to each other constantly that there is not much of an historic sense among politicians or journalists. And so even if it's a, a sort of an inaccurate historic sense, maybe it's better that we have a prime minister who throws in the odd reference that we can then... Um, devote a podcast to. <laughs> I also like that we're talking about ancient history now and Rome and the Roman Empire rather than the, the the one historical event that all politicians seem absolutely obsessed with, which is obviously the Blitz in the Second World War and Churchill. And it, it's nice to be able to get a little bit further back. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleague Rachel Cunliffe, and our guest Tim Durrant from the Institute for Government. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Please do leave us a generous review. Selling a little? 
or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.